You are listening to the ESG in Property podcast, where we interview the industry's leading experts who deliver the world's most innovative real estate products, services, buildings, and businesses. Join us as we extract key advice that you can adopt for personal and professional success. With your hosts, Jordan Ralph and Adam Hines from Life Proven ESG Property Company. Hello, 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 and welcome to the ESG in Property podcast. And you are here with Adam Hines and my co-host Jordan Ralph from Life Proven ESG Property Company. And today we are diving into minimum energy efficiency standards, energy performance certificates, green lease clauses, and data sharing between tenants and landlords. So a hugely valuable and timely topic. So now many of the regulations just for the listeners are specific to the UK, but for our international listeners, we have not forgotten about you. So do not stress. We will talk about how um, changing regulations, regardless of your geographical location, um, is impacting real estate at a decision making level. So we'll give you insights at a macro level that you can adopt to your specific geographical location. Um, so do not stress, we have you covered. So to lead us into this topic, we have the legendary Edward Glass from Forsters LLP. So Edward, a very, very warm welcome to the ESG in Property podcast show. Thanks, Adam. That's very kind. Look forward to welcome. It. Welcome, Edward. Pleasure to, to have you uh, to have you here. So it's good. Um, so with all these things with our guests, we, we really like to get into the weeds on on who they are, a bit of background in your career and your background in property. So um, over to you to, to give us an intro. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. So um, I'm a commercial real estate solicitor at, at Forsters. I've, I've been qualified as a solicitor since about 2013. Um, so that's about nine, ten years post-qualification experience. Um, and act for a a variety of investor and developer clients, um, often at this stage in my career, leading on uh, quite complex site acquisitions, development projects, and, and asset management instructions. Um, also manage various teams for the investor clients as they acquire assets, exit, and asset manage their portfolios. Um, so uh, why am I here? I guess the key point is that since about 2013-14, I've been following the E in ESG very closely as it links in uh, to to what we do as a real estate uh, practice here at Forsters. Um, and uh, for example, you'll see back in 2015, um, Adam mentioned it, minimum energy efficiency standards and sort of drafting articles for Estates Gazette, etc. on what was coming. And now it really has hit home and clients are really t- starting to take notice. Um, and so I consider that sort of my speciality, um, the E and ESG. What was, I mean, when we met, first met Edward a couple of months ago, um, we were kind of amazed at just how early you were adopting or considering and thinking of these issues. Was that uh, an interest of yours more on the environmental side? And that's something that you were focused on in law? Or was that something that just evolved out of the needs of your clients? I, th- I think uh, looking back 2013, 14, 15, it was clear to me that the green agenda was was going to, to hit the industry at some point. And at that point, it hadn't. Um, whereas now, I think certainly in the last two, three years post-pandemic, the agenda really has 
shot up the priority list um, and I don't think anyone can dispute that now. In those years I was shouting a lot about what was coming and not many people were listening but now for sure people are listening and, and need to take note um, and clearly the, you know this podcast and those to follow are very much on that note. Yeah, sure. And in, in something would be, be useful to probably just give an overview as to, to, to Forsters as well as a company. We mentioned pre pre call the, the, the name of the, of the of the practice coming up with a, a client in, in this field specifically is maybe just give us an overview as to, to Forsters for our listeners and, and what you guys do and your approach and services. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I've been at Forster since about 2016 and I, I moved to the firm because real estate is very much at its, at its core. It's um, the practice in which the firm was founded. Um, and I work as part of a team of, of practitioners, um, approximately 100, 120 spanning transactional litigation, residential and commercial with construction, planning, tax, banking and finance, corporate teams. Uh, and we've got expertise across various different sectors, living sector, um, re uh, retail, hotels, but also corporate occupiers. Um, uh, very much uh, part of that spanning all sectors is sustainability. And we have a dedicated team uh, allocated to that and advising our clients as they sort of navigate their way through what is the changing sustainability landscape. And that applies just not to real estate clients, but also clients across the firm. Sure. No, I think it's... Um... Thank you for for that. That's useful, kind of, as we head into into this conversation, um, and we'll probably dive straight into kind of discussions on minimum energy efficiency standards and, and EPCs. Um, be useful to kind of have your, I suppose, your viewpoint um, on what you're seeing that landscape to be, and and I think what's interesting, not to go back over all ground, but actually to see certainly what you just mentioned a minute ago, how that's evolved and how that's changed in over you know, relatively short period um, from sort of 2015 to, to where we are now. I mean, probably for, for what we're seeing is just how quickly that's changed even in the last six months. Um, so it'd be good to kind of get that overview from you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think EPCs and minimum energy efficiency standards, they're quite a blunt tool um, regulatory-wise, um, but they have, uh, for their detractors, uh, instigated a certain degree of change in the industry. Um, back in 2015, when the regulations first came to force, the, the key date, which has just passed, the 1st of April 2023, um, seemed a long way off. And I don't think anyone was really taking that much notice. Um, whereas now, of course, we have passed that date and it's unlawful to continue to let any F4G rated EPC property uh, unless an exemption applies or, or the relevant letting falls outside the scope of the regulations. Um, and I think naturally people have taken note of that. There is that element of criminality that now applies. And on top of that, increasingly my experience suggests that um, landlord clients are becoming increasingly aware of what is coming. And I think we all know that um, the anticipated thresholds are set to rise quite significantly by 2027 a C rating and 20, uh, EPCB by 2030. Um, I say increasingly, that's not all clients. And so um, there's certainly a, a piece of an educational piece to continue in, in relation to that. Now, those those thresholds aren't set in law yet, but I think m my suggestion to everyone here is that they w it will happen to some degree. It's only going in one direction. And whilst I describe it as a blunt tool, I think that blunt tool can continue to be used to force change in the industry. 
Um, in terms of how I see it now on, in practice, I think there are some common uh, misunderstandings as to where we are post 1st of April. Um, and, uh, and one of those is in particular in relation to exemptions um, and acquiring assets. Um, and my, my sense is that for those doing DD, looking at new assets and seeing FOG rated property, it perhaps isn't the red flag that I think it ought to be at this point. And I say that because even if there are exemptions already in place that uh, an owner has, has, has established themselves, they won't carry through on an acquisition automatically. A buyer will need to do something, and that might work, uh, that might well be involve uh, capex potentially. So, Edward, just on that, so you're saying in the event of uh, a, a, an existing landlord having an exemption to be Correct. technically yeah. non-compliant with the minimum energy efficiency standards. In the event that they were to sell that building and a new buyer was to come in, that exemption status may not transfer. Is that right? It, it's correct. Yeah, the, the exemptions in, in the per, transaction. Yeah, the exemptions are personal, so it, it's you start afresh. There wow. is okay. the the availability of what is a six month breathing space exemption that enables a buyer to bring it up to see. But for example, if a if a previous owner is sought consent an exemption from the tenant on the basis that it couldn't seek tenant consent. Um, then the same scenario would apply post-acquisition. You can't rely on that exemption that the previous owner has already put in place. So whilst it might look, you, you, on a DD, you might look and see FLG rated property exemption alongside it. At this point, clients ought to be aware that uh, that won't apply to them without doing something positive um, in order to continue. Um, and the circumstances in which that exemption is sought may be different to that which has been sought before. Can we can we talk about something you, you mentioned there about the kind of the tool for acquisition and and the due diligence? And it's something that we we just started talking on pre pre call. We're seeing such a, a massive um, onus on EPC, um, certainly from clients looking to acquire buildings and properties, and the market whoever we've spoken to in the kind of the commercial space at the moment just is explaining just how tight their margins are and the success of, of buildings are. Are you sort of seeing in, in your work changing patterns and behaviours around, around discounts and clients looking to negotiate those savings for buildings that aren't meeting even, you know, EPCC or, or forecasting B at the moment? Is that something that's across your, your radar? I, I'd say it, it varies across clients and it's certainly incumbent on us as solicitors to put this on clients radar as and when they're acquiring but as to the significance of the position to different clients it does vary some are very familiar with what is is coming and and particularly the the potential capex liability that 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 will follow as a consequence of having to get to C having to get to B uh, other clients perhaps taking more of a relaxed approach and and just cracking on, mindful that those regulations, those thresholds still aren't in law yet. So it does vary significantly. My own view is that uh, there's, there's quite significant uh, change coming and and uh, with those thresholds set to rise significantly, you don't want to be in a position with an asset which you've got to forecast fortune on in the future 
um, uh, in order to bring it up to a regulatory, a regulatory basis. Um, should also add that lenders are also uh, driving things, and so it's very much on their radar as well. I was just going to say, which it comes down to as well is, is something Adam and I are seeing a lot of, and, and part of um, something we advocate a lot for is the the accessibility of building information and building data. And it's amazing how from the other side of the fence when that information isn't available and then all of a sudden you're making sort of assumptions or having to rely on the best case from a site visit, actually that can be quite detrimental to a a landlord selling an asset or actually um, playing to the the hands of someone looking to buy and and negotiate. And what we found on, on a building we're helping a client at the moment acquire we'd be doing a mock and draft EPC to show them what the, the cost changes would be. It's just how, um, uh, how how that information just isn't readily available through robust building records. And even though the clients own the building for, for 10 years, there isn't that kind of trail of, of information. Um, and at a, at, a, at a legal level, kind of the transactional level, there's still a massive gap in terms of just how important that information is. Um, are you, as part of your work, you mentioned it's, it's very much dependent on type of clients and how relaxed they are. Are you, is it changing quite a lot significantly the work that you're doing with, with clients in kind of information and data on, on the building? I think for us as lawyers looking at um, the due diligence aspects of the energy efficiency effectively of a building, it's very much putting on their rate, putting clients on their radar. What, what, what is the current position? in relation to regulation, what is anticipated, uh, but also practical points that clients can think about in terms of uh, securing their position in terms of DD. And and, and there's a a lot out there about the inaccuracy of EPCs. Um, And I I know we touched on it before, but uh, now more than ever um, is uh, the importance of getting EPCs right and, and ideally getting access to that information that you, as you describe is so difficult to get hold of. Uh, but if you're spending millions on a building, then it, it really is quite, I suggest, quite important to get it right. Um, looking at the overall picture, at the moment, we've got a minimum rating of F or, uh, of an E, so F or G, and experience suggests that typically you can bring up buildings pretty quickly to and do very little to bring it up to that minimum threshold. The significance, of course, is that threshold is going to ramp up significantly, we think. Um, and so the importance of having those accurate EPCs, having access to that data is, is, has never been more important. Yeah, I think um, I suppose to try and try and wrap this up because it's, a, it's a, such a big topic and has so many implications in for meaningful thoughts and advice and considerations for existing building owners and those who are looking to acquire i suppose for existing asset owners who have a portfolio um it's understanding do you currently have energy performance certificate risk in your portfolio that may be non-compliant now and i can guarantee you there are landlords out there who are non-compliant but don't realize um that they, they haven't done an audit on their on their assets across their portfolio and that's, that's obviously a, a significant risk to the operational performance of that building. 
Um, and then in the event of a future sale, that would definitely be picked up by a future purchaser auditing the information and evidence that's in place because the incoming buyer would effectively be taking on risk and they know they will have to have capital expenditure when they acquire it to upgrade it to make it long-term compliant. So I think the key point there is understanding the risk um, on existing assets and what the risk translates to in terms of capex costs to upgrade those buildings. But that's just to maintain compliance today. As Ed, the other point that Edward um, rightly pointed out is they are currently under consultation for uplifts to the um, minimum energy standards. So the EPC changing from a C to a B. So that's still in consultation. But if that is adopted, which we are forecasting it will be, that will have um, implications for a very large percentage of UK's real estate. And therefore, people making um, development decisions or regeneration decisions now should probably be considering the likelihood of future changes coming into play and any regeneration to protect yourself um, against that should probably be adopted in your OPEX budgets right now. So you know what you need to do when and how to remain long-term compliant. Because once again, if you were to sell the asset today, even though those change, future regulatory changes are still in consultation, what we are seeing from our client's perspective is when they're doing a pre-acquisition or and therefore that is a CapEx and OPEX cost risk to them as an investment and therefore they're discounting the offer price they're willing to pay. So all of these attributes um, have a material financial impact. So they, they should be really fundamental to this sort of investment strategy on an asset by asset basis, and also the acquisition strategy of someone buying them. Um, so we've, we've seen in the marketplace people procuring assets at the moment, not realizing that what they're buying may have um, implications in the next five years that it will become non-compliant. So it really is just, as you mentioned, Edward, the penny starting to drop to think, okay, the, these aren't just wishy-washy sustainable things. These have a material impact on the finance, operational and financial performance of the building. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think just one point to, to add there, wrapping up this, or maybe it's leading into sort of the next discussion point is, um, is thinking about asset management and leasing of buildings now with terms that traverse these potential these deadlines coming forward in the future and as part of that there is of course that financial implication potentially in terms of capex required but also landlord clients need to think about the when is that going to be carried out and how with tenants potentially in situ if you're granting leases now you can't hide behind the fact that in the future you might actually need to do something in order ideally to bring a building up to standard so certainly something to think about now yeah. even though it seems a long way off it's interesting actually the, the traversing of, of standards across leases is actually road mapping you know a lot of clients saying i need to get it to this point now but actually it's it's knowing actually where the the risks and what works would need to happen in order to meet those thresholds over a period because it we are talking you know, worst case scenario for, for clients to get to a B of around you know, seven years. <clears throat> Actually, that's quite a long horizon to plan and manage work through. And, and, and something that 
you, you you speak about just how enormous this will become is buildings we're looking at at the moment can be a really sort of soft C in, in banding, but actually to get it to a B is requires, you know, we, we've been looking at a building that's only been refurbed maybe eight years ago. And we're forecasting it would be around half a million pounds to get it to a, to a B, um, just purely because some of the technology that was put in was a bit old and it's reliant on some, some fossil fuel heating and it's got, um, you know, some T8 life fittings. It's, it hasn't got double glazing everywhere. Actually, just to get it to a point would be, you know, significant, significant exposure. And I think the interesting thing around where where that's heading is, as Adam said, a lot of clients are just forecasting that that's happening now and saying we have to get it to a, to a B. But the thing we find interesting is from a funding level, what's being imposed on clients is actually saying we want it to be a B, even if a client's willing to take that kind of longer term view of, of works. And I think that's that's something that is certainly being being pushed quite heavily and i think that's an interesting play that is sort of feeding within all of this even if it's not necessarily a green backed um development finance loan or if it's a you know a green um a green mortgage for example on a property it's more around actually any lender just wants to see this um threshold being met so i think it's yeah it's certainly um certainly interesting the, the interplays here of everything absolutely Absolutely. And one, one thing just to add for, I suppose, international listeners outside the UK is although we're talking about a very specific regulation um, in the UK, this still applies internationally in that each geographical location, each country, even in some states, for example, might have specific law changes, some that are being adopted, um, whether that's from an ESG perspective or purely from a sustainability perspective of trying to achieve the Paris Agreement um, of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And they will have targets um, set in place. Some may be actually formally adopted and some may be still in consultation. But I suppose the, the key theme and narrative for you to consider is what are the likelihood of these changing regulations coming into force and how does that impact the assets that I own? Or how does that impact if I was to acquire an asset and I may be holding it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years? What are the likely changes that I would incur in that hold period? And if I was then to sell it, what's the next purchaser in the chain going to what risks will they incur? And how can I mitigate myself against those for myself and for the future purchaser if I was to sell it? So it's not just, so don't look at this as just about, oh, it's only in the UK for this specific regulation. We're talking about every single legislative or regulation change to, regardless of the ge geographical location. So it's about a concept of looking ahead in time for the hold period and the exit strategy and how changing regulations may impact your investment and development strategy throughout that sort of life cycle. That probably leads us quite nicely into the next um, topic, actually, around the rise of green lease clauses or ESG um, lease clauses. And that's in both commercial setting, um, but we're also starting to see quite an interesting rise in residential tenancies as well and student accommodation tenancies. So, Edward, I'd like to sort of hear from you around what you're seeing as a changing narrative for both the landlord and the tenants sort of driving the integration and adoption of those clauses um, and there's any sort of general considerations that you have for landlords at this point yeah th thank you adam yeah i think 
certainly um, commercial and residential, there, there are parallels in, in, in what we are seeing in, in respect of both. Um, I'd say commercial green leases, commercial contracts are um, in the real estate sector have moved further ahead of residential in my experience to date. Um, but that's not to say that we are starting to see uh, residential contracts starting to incorporate some of the principles that have otherwise been in place in in sort of commercial setting for a few few years few years now. Um, uh, I, I I probably ought to stress that the 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 the, the, uh, the position is changing all the time. It's evolving. Um, continually, and so uh, we're just looking at granting a lease now that was where the respective agreement to grant it was in 2019, 2020, and I'd suggest to you now that the the lease that has been contracted in that respect is now potentially out of date in respect to the green lease wording that are the expectations of the industry, or at least parts of the industry now, and so it is a very dynamic landscape. And it's mm. um, it's 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 very I suggest very important for clients to keep a pace with that in terms of expectations from lenders, buyers, etc. In terms of what I you know I'd sort of see the sort of core main areas is 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 drafting in leases and, and it can be done in different ways whether it's embedded within a lease whether it's in a separate addendum or, or whether there are different varieties of people may have heard of light green dark green etc. But really the core areas in my view are. Um, clauses to protect the landlord's position, and that's particularly important in relation to EPCs current in a building and tenants not doing anything detrimental to impact the landlord's position, particularly mindful of uh, minimum energy, as we've discussed at length. And then the area of sort of enhancing... Sorry, Edward, just on that, can I just, can I just jump in there quickly? So yeah, sure. is that around, let's say, let's say a landlord um, owns a commercial asset, the tenant in there has their tenancy and they were to do a fit out, for example, of their space, which may then impact the energy performance certificate for the whole building or that area without the landlord realising. And then therefore that would put the landlord at risk. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. And that's probably a, a sort of a, a core clause now that you would see in any commercial leasing contract Um particularly with sure. what is going on. And on a practical level, of course, many commercial leases here in the UK have, have provisions that allow a tenant to make alterations to the premises, typically with consent mm. of the landlord. And never again has it been more important to actually check what a tenant is doing because what a landlord would, would not want to do is inadvertently give consent to some alterations that may significantly have an impact on the EPC rating. Um, so very close attention needs to be applied to what tenants are up to but, but just Edward, can i yeah. can i just ask you just on that point is something um we we had to come across our our um our desk not not too long ago it was a, a client was looking to take some space in a building um and fit it out and take a, a relatively long lease but the the landlord's um kind of um uh, supply or area was quite negative in terms of an EPC and in, in the use of gas and uh, quite an inefficient system. Um, landlord areas weren't particularly good. And there was a, an interesting conversation between the tenant who wanted to really maximise the efficiency of their space through new M&E and new lighting through their own fit out, but was kind of felt that the landlord's 
own part of the building was quite detrimental. And there was an interesting discussion. Are you seeing that kind of interplay at the minute between landlord and tenant? I think it's a really interesting point because I suggest over the last few years, the dynamic has really been that the landlord's been dictating what the tenant must do. Um, and I think what we will start to see, and we are starting to see, is a degree of mutuality in, in terms of expectations. On one hand, a landlord is asking a tenant to do X. Similarly, you would expect, and in principle, the landlord to commit to do Y on a sort of, sort of similar basis, particularly in relation to common, common areas. Um, and that wording is starting to creep into leases where it's not just a one-way dialogue, uh, one-way uh, commitment from a tenant. Um, and I think, uh, if, if speaking out of principle, I guess that feels right, doesn't it? In in that both both are working towards the same goal. It can't be all one directional. Um, so I think that's one that's one to watch very carefully. And, and in terms of drafting green leases, commercial, residential, I think that's certainly something that we'll see more of. And, and certainly, it, it, it's almost naturally feed. It makes it easier to document because you're not just looking at tenant does this and potentially pays for it. It's, it's working both ways. Yeah, what, well, a two-pronged question. One is what are the sort of typical green lease clauses that you're seeing as A, the sort of stock standard this is going in most leases and then B, the more if you've seen any sort of new innovative ones that are, are starting to come into play. And is it all right to then just touch on how are these lease clauses actually enforceable? So a very simple example, if there's a lease clause where the tenant will use a certain amount of energy, they'll have like a cap on their energy usage and they go above it, what, what's the typical enforceability of this? Is they fines? Are they you're in breach of contract and they're kicked out? Like wh where is this going in terms of contracts and clauses? Yeah, to, to be honest, the clause that you, you describe is probably not one that I've seen. Um, probably the it, that's probably quite aspirational and, uh, and we may say, of course, too innovative. Uh, as to, well, no, I, I'm not not against that. Clearly, uh, I, um, I think in terms of the bog standard, that uh, uh, the commercial motivation is typically just to get a document agreed, and often sure. that means trimming down these clauses as much as possible. Bearing in mind that um, you know both parties just want to move forward ASAP, but also have mindful of the sustainability. In terms of what what you see, and I, I would suggest are becoming almost. Not, not necessarily automatic, but the expectation is that you'd, you'd have clauses protecting the position, I as we've just discussed, in terms of EPCs. You, you potentially have clauses that anticipate the landlord needing to do works in the future um, and um, in order to meet increasing thresholds, and that's certainly one that landlords now need to think about. Um, certainly, there's a degree of uh, clauses that, that we are starting to see as relatively standard, which is sort of operational commitments from tenants to recycle to, to lower energy use etc but probably they're the first to drop out yeah um uh, but finally i think uh, uh, an almost uh, uh requirement now is sort of data sharing clauses for, for, for particularly for institutional landlords um it, 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 it sort of almost go into any document now as to, to to permit that and we may explore that a little bit further in terms of enforceability and that's not to say I, there are more innovative approaches that have been yeah. explored um a good example and i i'll refer to it here is the chancery lane project which is um 
uh, available, you can see online, but this is a group of lawyers sort of working towards on a pro bono basis to sort of draw together new new clauses to move the industry forward, not just in the real estate sector, to a net zero world. Uh, and they have some quite interesting aspirational wording that, in, including those in rela relation to residential documents that works. And, and notably one of those, which I haven't seen in practice yet, is tenants rebated for complying with, so, so it's not necessarily a stick, but actually an incentive to encourage tenants mm. to, to be sued. So it, these are all interesting discussions. Um, on a wider level in terms of enforcement, I think it is very, and certainly in the commercial sphere to start with, it's very difficult to enforce. Um, on one hand, if a tenant does, as you described earlier, something that lowers the energy rating and the landlord's there for one breach and subject to penalties, etc., through the regulations, that's an easy one for a landlord to claim breach of contract damages. If you're inviting a tenant to lower the energy use as much as it possibly can, that's very much more difficult to enforce. And a landlord yeah. in a commercial sphere is just highly unlikely to forfeit. So my own sense is that lawyers can spend a lot of time drafting clauses, um, but fundamentally what needs to happen is there needs to be a, a, a matching process in practice on the ground. Is the tenant actually doing that? And um, because practically a landlord just isn't going to start suing or forfeiting leases. Um, and I think a similar sort of theme follows through into the residential sector and probably more so given the individuals involved. So it's more like, a, I suppose, a, for those ones, a bit a, a, almost like a relationship commitment. We're, we're committing to this um, and it's, a, it's an ongoing work, working relationship to work together to reduce that wherever possible. Absolutely. Using the emissions that, or, or energy usage as an example. Absolutely. And, and, and certainly what we have seen and what we've we, we've prepared ourselves for clients is different structures to document these and, and one is the potential that you, you, you rather than embed these commitments into you know legal jargon and actual contracts you, you have some sort of commitment easily understandable from both landlord and tenant in a separate document somewhere that the parties are committing to um and, and that that is often much more palatable um, mm. at this point and i think Certainly, in the residential sphere, that, that that has huge potential to be the sort of way forward, as well as potentially, you know, the more heavy contractual commitments in 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 the residential contracts. We um we spoke about the importance of data in buildings to to disclose, and obviously that that forms a massive part of the the G of ESG and disclosure and um commitment and transparency of actually how a building is is performing i think this is something that we were massively fascinated about when we first started talking with you is just actually the consent of tenant data and around utilities and and actually the augmenting of that data to, to get to carbon scores it'd be useful to maybe just give an overview as to what you're seeing and actually the rise of of what that data sharing actually looks like yeah i think i think first of all the thing to say for, for any landlord now the, the, the first clause we would advise to stick into their their standard leases is those that enable them to collect data from tenants. And there's a natural reluctance from many tenants to, to sort of hand over what they might consider to be sensitive material as to what they're doing. But fundamentally, my own view is that it's for, provided it's for the proper purpose uh, of moving the building forward on a practical level in terms of aspiring towards a net zero sort of goal. And that, that's really quite important. 
Um, but that's not to say all tenants just fall over and, and accept it. And it, it, it can be quite challenging. And it's, it's interesting that there has been discussion in recent months with the government around potentially mandating the sharing of data as between landlord and tenant. Um, I'm not sure that that one will follow through, but it's, it sort of goes to illustrate what a, how important it is to the industry and actually how important it is practically to move it all forward. I think uh, typically there is an element of sharing that's allowed. One, one thing that we are ex experiencing more and more at the, at the direction of asset managers and, and, and the relevant client teams is landlords wanting to access that data direct with the utility companies. And that's the sort of an additional layer of consent that is required of a tenant. And so that's certainly something that is becoming increasingly prevalent in commercial leasing is a commitment from tenants to allow for that um, because that's typically the easiest way for a landlord to measure and, and access that data. Um, so I, yeah, it's, it, it's almost, uh, it, it's extremely important now in my experience that those clauses are in there to some degree. Just a quick thought on that to, to jump in. I think some landlords may think that that might be overkill for now and for, for their specific, I suppose, their, their current position, it, it may be. However, it's really important to get these um, clauses in place now because that might not be the case in two, three, five, seven years' time. So having the ability to access that data when it's needed because I can guarantee it will be needed to evidence the performance of the asset um, at, at any point it is going to be very, very valuable. So having that in place now with the foresight of the sort of evidencing future performance is going to be yeah, a really important consideration. And that isn't just a UK-based piece of advice. That would be global. Um, it's, it's really fundamental to underpinning the value of that building is how it's performing operationally and compliant against long-term, I suppose, legislative potential changes. Yeah, I think, I, I, and just experience suggests that what we're seeing is a large number of conversations between landlords and tenants in existing relationships, looking at opportunities to start including those commitments now mid-term mid because of the requirement and goes to show that once a tenant's in situ, it's much more difficult, obviously, than trying to anticipate that in new transactional arrangements moving forward. So an interesting interesting point you made around um, landlords going directly to utility companies to access that data and actually that kind of irons out a lot of the the risk of sort of or personal data collection from site and you know mismanagement of, of information. So that's an interesting point and something we've not actually seen before is having that direct link to energy source. Um, so no, that was that was very interesting. Um, I guess it would probably be good to have some some closing thoughts, advice, um, a bit of a crystal ball on on what you see and and where that where the industry is heading. I think we've obviously got a good <clears throat> seven years ahead of us of of change and um, you know every every quarter, every every six months, everything seems to be turned on its its head once again, and and actually amazing how much. Um, consumer or investment sentiment changes towards um, towards these changes and, and risks. But I think something we haven't really 
touched upon, which would be good just to kind of as a, as a wrap up, is the real opportunities here as well. I think it's we, we've spoken quite a lot around the the impact and spoken about the commercial impact and the viability impact, but actually there's a huge huge opportunity here, and and actually the bigger picture of, of why this is happening is to decarbonise and and to achieve net zero net zero goals. I guess be useful to kind of wrap up with your closing thoughts really on on where this is all heading. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Jordan, about the opportunity here, um, especially as we sort of move to a sort of um, and the acknowledgement that we just can't simply knock all buildings down and start again. It's uh, there is a lot of buildings out there where if you've that potentially may look um, uh, vulnerable at the moment, but at the same time may be an opportunity to move forward and, and and start refreshing those buildings if you've got the finances to do it. And certainly there've been there's been fundraising out fundraisings out there by clients with that very purpose in mind so pl- plenty of opportunity um uh, uh, moving forward i guess in terms of just sort of wrapping up on a couple of key thoughts uh, one, one thing we haven't spoken about is is operational energy ratings i think that is certainly something to watch um and uh, whilst the government legislative machine mo- seems to move very slowly at the moment in this area, those EPCBC ratings are not in law yet. The other consultation that is also outstanding um, is in relation to a neighbours-based operational rate, rate energy rating system with man- mandatory disclosure. I think that's certainly something to watch on the radar and, again, uh, underlines the importance of the ability to access data. Um, so, so just just to jump in there for those listeners who, who aren't aware of Neighbours, it's a it's an Australian based um, accreditation where it looks purely at the operational energy usage of real estate. So it ignores um, construction phase and just looks at the operating energy use. And the UK government's consulting on a Neighbours style. Um, energy rating submission requirements. So landlords would have to submit their meter reads um, quarterly, annually, that's TVC, and that would then dictate whether they are long-term compliant in terms of their operational energy efficiencies. And those obviously standards are yet to be agreed, but that's what's looking likely to come into play in the UK. And it could very well um, be a similar process adopted in in other countries. So just just to be aware. And I guess just one, the final, perhaps the final point to add is, in a sort of closing remark, is um, we uh, this is a this is obviously a changing landscape, but it is moving in in one direction for the, for the better. Um, and obviously, it's very important to keep pace with that. Uh, and certainly, some clients are, are starting to push boundaries, etc. That are testing us as lawyers and testing the industry. And I think increasingly those. What will be seen as novel right now will be the norm in five years' time. Um, a couple of my own thoughts on how quickly that will happen. I think uh, I can also already see it to a degree looking at assets on the market where they are being marketed on the basis of, for example, having green lease clauses in their leases. That, that to me is quite a fundamental step because I don't think in marketing brochures uh, three years ago that would have been the case. Um but ultimately, the big um, underlining incentive for client landlord clients to move forward will be when lenders start requiring 
particular provisions, speaking more particularly about um, uh, green leases here, when lawyers are required to report to lenders on what their expectations are in relation to green leases. That really is the next step, in my view. And I wouldn't, uh, for those that are familiar with the Certificate of Title, Standard Certificate of Title that we use here in the UK, um, at the moment doesn't have any provisions in relation to that, but I can see that changing quite soon. Um, and so that, for me, is the next crunch manoeuvre. And I think the perhaps one of the key clauses there would be data sharing um, that, 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 that could find its way into that certificate. Fantastic. That was a, a very a nice way to, to wrap up, especially um, dropping in something that we hadn't even touched upon at the end, which is, which is great. Plenty, is there's that, plenty more. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there is. But um, I think that just goes to show just how big a piece this 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 is. And, you know, the simplicity of just saying an EPC doesn't even scratch the surface of just how deep and, and how far that reaches through transaction or operation of, of, of assets and, and, and what we need to think about. But I think it's amazing to see and, and hear from you, certainly at that forefront of the transactional side, actually what is being requested and what's being pushed. And, and it's almost similar to like the, the, the steps of planning in terms of, you know, that's always a good barometer for what's changing and what's emerging, but actually seeing what you're, you're finding through your, your tenants and what they're asking for, your, your clients rather, um, is is really interesting. And it's it's definitely um, a good perspective on on what we see. Certainly at a stage, you know, before that or after that, where we're we're working on behalf of clients through design or, or operational stage. So thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. So pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Edward, top man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ESG in Property podcast. If you liked our content, please like, comment, share, follow, and get in touch as we'd love to hear from you. If you have any ESG real estate service requirements, please feel free to contact us at www.lifeproven.co.uk. Till next time.